Welcome back to the Ransomed Heart Podcast with John Eldridge. One of my favorite parts of parenting young children back when our boys were young and still children in our household was I loved reading to them. I loved telling them stories. The three boys actually shared a room when they were very young and I'd go into their bedroom at bedtime and we'd say our prayers and then I'd lie on the floor and tell them stories. And those just remain some of the most precious memories of our household. I love reading. And even now here at the Empty Nest Years, Stace and I will read to each other sometimes. And so I'm going to read to you, friends, here on the Ransomed Heart Podcast in the second week of a series on prayer. I'm going to read to you from chapter one of my new book called Moving Mountains on Powerful and Effective Prayer. A Disruptive but Hopeful Truth. Look, let's go ahead and name the elephant in the room. Some prayers work and some prayers don't. Why does that surprise and irritate us? Some diets work, but most don't. No one is really surprised by that. We simply keep looking for the one that will work for us. Some investments produce, others don't. You look for the program that works for you. Some schools are effective, others fail badly. Hopefully you can find the situation that's right for your child. There is a way things work. Can you name anything in life where this isn't so? I damaged my elbow last summer doing some yard work, and then I ignored the problem for weeks until I was forced to see my physical therapist. I went in under the assumption that a couple of visits ought to take care of my problem. After all, it was just a strain. It's not like I broke it or something. Yet therapy took months, and I was so irritated by that. And it was irritated at me. That is, I kept irritating the muscle by using my elbow before it was healed. I kept aggravating it because I didn't want to accommodate my lifestyle to account for the realities of a tiny muscle in my left elbow. You know the irritation I speak of. Something adolescent in human nature just doesn't like having to submit to the realities of the world around us and within us. We want to eat whatever we feel like eating, and then we're surprised and dismayed when our health collapses down the road. We want exercise or weight loss to come quickly and easily. We want it to fit neatly into our calendar. We want our friends to be good to us without ever having to look at how our personality impacts them. We want our kids to turn out without making the sacrifices in our parenting style that's required to fit their needs. And so it is with prayer. We just want it to be simple and easy. We want it to go like this. God is loving and powerful. We need his help. So we ask for his help as best we know how. The rest is up to him. After all, he's God. He can do anything. The problem is, sometimes he comes through. Often he doesn't. And we have no idea for the rhyme or reason why. We lose heart and abandon prayer. And we feel hurt and justified in doing so. We abandon the very treasure God has given us for not losing heart, for moving the mountains in front of us, bringing about the changes we so desperately want to see in our world. The uncomfortable truth is this. That is a very naive view of prayer. On a level with believing that all a marriage needs is love, 
or that we should base our foreign policy on belief in our fellow man. That simple view of prayer has crushed many a dear soul because it ignores crucial facts. There is a way things work. God is powerful. I ask for help. Now it's up to him. It reminds me of a scene from the movie Patch Adams. Patch is a young medical student with a heart of gold. He wants to offer health care to the disenfranchised. He rallies a group of like-minded idealists, and they begin to chase their dreams. Then tragedy strikes. Patch's girlfriend is murdered by a schizophrenic man who was among the outcasts they were trying to rescue. The scene then takes us to a clifftop. Patch is standing on the brink. The mood is ominous. It appears he is about to take his life. Patch is arguing with God. I like that part very much. He is reaching out. He is wrestling in the right place. Then he reveals his misunderstanding of the world. Patch is looking up to heaven. Answer me, please. Tell me what you're doing. There is silence. Okay, let's look at the logic. You create man. Man suffers enormous amounts of pain. Man dies. Maybe you should have had just a few more brainstorming sessions prior to creation. You rested on the seventh day. Maybe you should have spent that day on compassion. His understanding is incomplete, dangerously incomplete. It leaves out some awfully essential facts from that story. You create man. Man chooses to rebel against you. We hand our lives, the earth, and the history of the human race over to the evil one. All our misery flows from this fact. But you intervene. You sent your son to redeem us and restore us. Now we find ourselves in an epic war for the human race and the planet. Do you see what a difference those omissions make? You cannot begin to understand something like murder or wildfire without those elements of the story, nor can you understand why some prayers work and others don't. There are answers. Prayer sets up a terrible dilemma for us. We want to pray. It's in our nature. We desperately want to believe that God will come through for us, but then he doesn't seem to. And where does that leave us? I believe God is in the dilemma. I believe he wants us to push through to real answers, solid answers. For one thing, this reality we find ourselves in is far more dynamic than most folks have been led to believe, especially people of faith. Like Patch, we hold dangerously incomplete understandings of our situation, such as God is all-powerful he did not intervene, so it must not be his will to intervene. Yes, God is sovereign, and in his sovereignty, he created a world in which the choices of men and angels matter tremendously. He has granted to us the dignity of causation, as Pascal called it. Our choices have enormous consequences. We will have much more to say about this going forward, but prayer is not as simple as, I asked, God didn't come, I guess he doesn't want to. We are embarked on the most exciting story possible. 
filled with danger, adventure, and wonders. There is nothing more hopeful than the thought that things can be different, that we can move mountains, and we have some role in bringing that change about. Maybe we can begin to find some answers, or at least a new way of looking at things, in a short story from the Old Testament. During the reign of King Ahab, circa 860 B.C., the Middle East was leveled by a -a three-and-a-half-year drought. Crops failed. Famine swept the land. Herds of livestock were put down because there wasn't a wild tuft of grass to keep them alive. It was a scene right out of the 20th century American Dust Bowl, or the more recent famines in Africa. But relief was close at hand. God spoke to the prophet Elijah that the time of the drought had come to an end. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Go, and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. From 1 Kings 18. Finally, the heavens are going to relent. Rain is coming. A real gully washer is headed their way. A genuine biblical deluge. The kind that sinks ox carts up to their axles in mud and gives the kids a week off school. But before it can all happen, and this is the first fascinating wrinkle in the story, Elijah has to pray it will rain. Now, why is that? Why doesn't God simply send the rain? We don't know. We have to stick with the story. Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Go and look toward the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, Go back. The seventh time the servant reported, A cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, Go and tell Ahab, Hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds. The wind rose, a heavy rain came on, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. I love this narrative. It is so practical and immensely helpful when it comes to understanding prayer and how it works. God is going to come through all right, but he insists on involving Elijah's prayers. It reminds me of Augustine's line, Without God, we cannot, and without us, he will not. We find ourselves in the sort of universe where prayer plays a crucial role, sometimes the deciding role. Our choices matter. Next, Elijah doesn't just take a quick whack at it. No little cut flower prayers here, as Eugene Peterson calls them. No little, Jesus, be with us today, prayers. Elijah is determined to see results. He bows and prays and then sends his manservant to see if it's working. Is it having any effect? I love his posture, his willingness to give it a go, see what happens, and then adjust himself to the results. The servant comes back and reports that the sky is bleak and empty, just as it has been for years, barren as old Sarai's womb. This is the point at which most of us give up. But the old prophet sticks at it. He has another go and sends his man to have a second look. Nothing. So, he takes his cloak off, puts his shoulder to the wheel, and gives it yet another try. He's not letting the evidence discourage him. 
six more times he sticks with it. By now, the rest of us would have bailed down to Starbucks to commiserate about the dark night of the soul and what to do with the silence of God. Not this old Israelite. He's still up on the mountain, persevering. After eight rounds of prayer, and rounds really does feel like the right word by this point, you get the feeling like they are rounds in the ring, full of sweat and grit and a real going at it. After the eighth bell, the servant says, well, there's a puff of cloud on the horizon, not any bigger than your fist. And that's all it takes. The storm is on its way. Contrast this with a story Anne Lamont shared in her autobiographical book, Traveling Mercies. She was recounting her somewhat justified paranoia over possible melanoma. Her father died from melanoma and a six-week wait to get a biopsy done. Anne had returned home from her dermatologist and was praying. So I wrote God a note on a scrap of paper. It said, I am a little anxious. Help me remember that you are with me even now. I am going to take my sticky fingers off the control panel until I hear from you. And then I folded up the note and put it in the drawer of the table next to my bed as if it were God's inbox. Now, I like Anne Lamott very much. I think it is a touching story, so true to our humanity. But it is just not helpful when it comes to prayer. Whose prayers do you think are more likely to see results, Elijah or Lamott's? If you were going to ask one of the two of them to pray for someone you love, who would you choose? So let's be honest. Some prayers work and some prayers don't. We might be embarrassed to admit that, but you know it's true. If you're interested in prayer at all, you are interested in prayer that works. That kind of prayer is the focus of this book. Which brings us back to Elijah the Tishbite. There's an overlooked passage late in the New Testament that's going to begin to connect some dots for us in a wild way. It comes from the book of James, and he brings us back around to the old man praying on the mountain. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. From chapter 5. The brother of Jesus is giving his readers a tutorial on the subject of prayer. He had seen some serious demonstrations of prayer, we might recall, growing up around the man who turned a boy's lunch into an all-you-can-eat buffet for 5,000? James points to the famous drought story I just cited and then makes a staggering connection. You are no different than Elijah. That's his purpose in using the phrase, Elijah was a man just like us. James is trying to disarm that religious posture that so often poisons the value of biblical stories. Well, sure, that was so-and-so, in this case, Elijah, and they were different than us. Nope, not the case. Actually, James makes it very clear. Elijah was a human being just like you. In other words, you can do it too. I'm not going to try and convince you that you ought to pray. If the struggles of those you love, the heartache, of the world, or your own dreams, desires, and afflictions do not move you, nothing I say here would be more compelling. What I can do 
is put a far, far more effective understanding of prayer in your hands, together with enough applications that you begin to get a feel for how things work. There is a way things work. But first, let's lift off our hearts a few of those dangerous misunderstandings in the way we look at God and prayer. I hope you're enjoying as much as I am this reading from my new book called Moving Mountains. And friends, Elijah was praying in partnership with God. God intended to end the drought, but the fascinating thing is he doesn't just zap it. He didn't just do it. He could have, but instead he has Elijah pray. Elijah is sort of ushering in the kingdom. He's ushering in what God is bringing and doing through his prayers. And that's really awesome because on the one hand, it means it's not up to you. And on the other hand, it means you get to play a pretty big part in this. You can do it too. (laughs) You can. We've just seen it too many times now not to know with confidence. That is just true. And it's going to change so much of your understanding of how the kingdom works and what God's up to and how he uses us. And Moving Mountains comes out next week, but you can pre-order it on our website or any of your online retailers. I'm going to read a few more chapters in the weeks ahead and learn some more about prayer. 